Welcome to Praxis, our singles uh, young adult ministry here at Lighthouse. My name is Alan. I'm one of the pastors here at this church. It's a joy to be able to just carve out time uh, during our week to gather as a people, as a, a fellowship group to study God's Word. We've been studying the book of Romans for quite some time, and we are uh, right on schedule plowing through. And for tonight, we will be in Romans chapter 8, looking at verses 18 to 27. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Romans chapter 8. And our passage tonight will be verses 18 to 27. I'll read our section of Scripture for us, and then we will pray for the Lord's help. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. This is the word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we, eagerly, as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, verse 26, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let's pray. God, we beg of you for help. Lord, even as we have just read, we are weak, and it comforts our hearts to know that the Spirit petitions on our behalf, that the Spirit dwells within your children to lead and guide them, and we pray that the Spirit would do His work to open our eyes to behold marvelous things, to see the glories of Christ, and to trust. Lord, we believe, increase our faith that Christ might be evident in how we live. Even as we encounter or undergo suffering, Lord, we do not lose heart because we know it is a way in which you are refining us, preparing us for the glory that is yours and that will be shared with us. And so use this time to equip uh, your saints that they might press on. Use this time to lift up our affections above the, the fog of various distractions that we may behold the splendor of our King. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. 
And so ends, familiar words, the sentence of judgment. God passes on the serpent, the woman, and Adam. For man's sin, death, and death is introduced to the world. And if that was not bleak enough, we see how wide the curse reaches. Back up from there, that harrowing conclusion, and we discover even creation itself is affected. God announces, curse is the ground because of you, Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So there we go. Decay and death. Since the start, these twin towers have haunted mankind and our planet as punishment, judgment for our disobedience. Everything is disfigured and broken in some shape or form. But we thank God that our Bibles don't end in Genesis 3. God has a plan of redemption, of renewal, that he will orchestrate, he will use even our rebellion and our seemingly demise to write a better story, to showcase the magnificence of his grace, the brilliance of his wisdom, or in a word, his glory. His glory. In the darkest of night, there's still light at the end of the tunnel. That amidst all the pain, misery, and fallenness in our world and in our own very souls, there is a glimmer of hope. God is ordaining, decreeing history towards Revelation 22, where a new heaven, a new earth, and the only thing broken there will be the curse. The moans of suffering replace with the praise of saints when Eden is restored. And the dwelling place of God is with man. And interestingly enough, this is what Paul aims to unfold for us in our time tonight. If you were here with us, last week we closed kind of holding a mixed bag. We were encouraged, that, taught that we are led by the Spirit. We rejoice in our adoptions as sons, co-heirs with Christ, heirs of God himself, destined for glory. That's good news. But Paul also tells us there's a sequence of events. Glance back, verse 17, provided we suffer with him in order that we may, uh, may also be glorified with him. So the path of glory is paved with suffering. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us when we encounter hardships. It only confirms what God is teaching us in his word. It only motivates us to endure knowing that everything is right on schedule as God designed. Our suffering is the prelude then to everlasting glory. And tonight, Paul expands on this lesson. Verse 18 of our passage is both a summary of the previous section and now the thesis statement for the next. Look again at verse 18. He says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. It's an exercise of vanity. Paul says comparing our current situation with what's in store for the future, it's a fool's errand. And that's not to trivialize our pains 
in this lifetime, suffering is unavoidable. It's very raw and real. We will experience betrayal, frustration, hardship, and harm. But in the next, God will wipe away every tear and do away with every evil. And we long for that. We long for that glorious day when God will make all things new. And yet presently, we know that we aren't there yet. We live in the in-between, in-between paradise lost and the celestial city. And so we groan. But we aren't the only ones to do so. In fact, in our passage, we're not even the first ones to do so. Paul has us consider the various groans for glory. And the first one comes from creation. If you're taking notes, the groan of creation, beginning verse 19. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The apostle piles it on thick. It says, waits, eager, longing. One word would have been sufficient. Three make it emphatic. So just imagine that. Consider that. The stars twinkling above, the Himalayan mountains, the sand on the Hawaiian shores, the giraffe in the safari, dolphins swimming in the Pacific Ocean, ants crawling in your apartment, to the microscopic amoeba. Paul tells us that they are all on the edge of their seats, brimming with anticipation. Creation is itching for the curtains to be pulled back to catch a glimpse of what? The revealing of the sons of God. Christian, that's you. That's me. Like friends and family at a wedding or surprise party, Creation is eager for the guests of honor to arrive. But that's nothing to pat ourselves on the back about. It's not because we're so glamorous. It's because creation's fate is tied to our own. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. We'll stop there. Futility is a nasty, devastating word. I like to think of it as a failure in progress. That no matter what you do, it's useless, right? Futility implies attempts at success, but never succeeding. It kind of conjures up bad memories and my desires to get buff, but that's why I don't even try. It's futile. It's what I tell my wife. I mean, this is Newton's second law of thorough dynamics. And entropy, the gradual decline of our universe. See, some of you are shocked that I know that. A little rude, but it's incredible what some Googling can do. It was Calvin who said the world was to be a theater of God's glory, exhibiting life and goodness. But marred by sin, the picture is distorted. That creation is doomed from the start, Paul tells us. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. That when man disobeyed, God wanted to make the ugliness of our sin apparent. And so he put it on display all around us. He cursed the ground. He punished creation. I think we know this. We see it every time 
When we examine our world, when we turn on the news, you have earthquakes and mudslides demolishing homes, droughts drying up crop, spoiled food, bankrupt businesses, riptides ripping children underwater, freak accident where a tiger mauls someone to death, tumors and invisible viruses like COVID killing off loved ones. And I could go on and on. And I will for a moment. Road rage, office politics, the monotony of work itself, marital infidelity, mental illness, suicide, the tediousness of our chores, raised voices and clenched fists, orphans and widows. The evidence is dizzying. All the futility, brokenness, death surrounding us in creation is a reflection of all the futility, brokenness, and death residing inside of us because of our sin. That's why it's a package deal. Sin is so serious an offense, so cataclysmic an evil, nothing is left unscathed. Creation itself is collateral damage. No longer free to flourish and thrive, creation is enslaved to similar chains that we, that we have, to deterioration and death. Thorns and thistles. Instead of working with man, creation works against man, resisting and fighting back. This is the byproduct of the fall. How it's always winter in Narnia. But don't overlook those last two little words of verse 20. In hope. In hope. They introduce to us the reversal, the beginning of the end. That as creation entered the curse because of man, so creation will exit the curse at the redemption of man. Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Here the snow begins to melt and we are afforded a sneak peek. Though the world be tarnished, we know God is still gracious. A good conversation with a friend the savory taste of a delicious meal, the grandeur of the Grand Canyon, the loyal company of our dog is a sign that not all is lost. It's a preview of what creation could be, foreshadowing the delights and joys and goodness of a future world, a world liberated. All the beauty and pleasures in this life are whispers of hope that we have for the next. Just listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes it. This is Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. He remarks, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. We read that maybe in our own 
devotionals, and it doesn't phase us because it seems so far-fetched, so unreal. It is a bizarre picture. But it's only bizarre because we have been doled. We have become so accustomed to brokenness and death in our lives, in our world. And we're not stunned when the wolf gobbles up a lamb or a cobra strikes an oblivious child. It's natural to us. It's supposed to happen today. But listen, not in the world to come. Now, Isaiah informs us the wolf will sleep next to the lamb. My son Everett, he can have a pet rattlesnake, maybe. Feel bad for that rattlesnake. The world, you see, will be refurbished in glory. And so creation itself pines for our redemption because it means their own. And to make it vivid, palpable to us, in verse 22, Paul paints creation as groaning. Groaning. Now, before we read it, groaning can communicate a message words on a page just can't. Though inarticulate and unintelligible, a whimper can express an ache or yearning that the English language can't do justice to. Elsewhere, creation is personified as rivers clapping, the hills singing, but here Paul wants us to feel the deep-seated longings, the groaning of creation. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. July 28th, 2013 is a day I'll never forget because it's the day Madison Riley Tsai was born, my daughter. And I can still remember it. You know, bringing a child into the world is not this pristine, cute procedure. It is straight-up war. Um, as a personal confession, I cannot handle blood. And so you can imagine the state I was in when I was ushered into the delivery room. I was weak, Okay, not in the cool slang way, but in the pathetic kind of way. And I remember my eyes locked with berries, my wife, and I could read her mind. She was telling me, stop it. Suck it up and pull it together before I kick you out of this room. And yet, there was nothing I could do about it. It was all too gory and gross, and I wanted to faint. You know, I was supposed to be in there to support my wife, but there she was holding my hand, telling me how to breathe, you know. But I am proud to announce, after many hours of labor, we did it, or she did it, right? She gave birth to our daughter. And with child in arms, the groans of childbirth are drowned out for the oohs and ahs of this little life. And that's a similar picture Paul is creating here. That's why Paul calls them birth pains, child pains, not death pains. There's a huge difference if the groan is heard from the ER versus the maternity ward. One is preparation for death, and fear and worry would be the appropriate reaction. But the other, the other is a precursor for life. And so joy builds. Creation groans because it is on the precipice of welcoming a glorious life. And what we find is that within the groan of creation, there is another groan, our second point, the groan of Christians. Verse 23. 
And not only the creation, but we, Christian, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. First fruits in this verse is exactly what you probably think it means. It's the first fruit of a season's produce. And so when you notice a tree finally yielding a peach, you pluck it, bite into it, and you're assured. There is more where that came from. It is harvest time. And Paul declares, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. This is what theologians call the already and not yet. There are dimensions to our salvation, our adoption, we already, currently, presently enjoy. We are indwelt and led by the Spirit. There's no condemnation in Christ. Our sins have been paid for. And reconciled to God, we can commune with Him. We pray to Him. We can fellowship with one another, forgive each other. His grace is at work in our lives, and we see it, that we're growing in obedience, that we're putting to death sin. But let's be honest. None of us are perfect. We haven't yet fully arrived. There is a not yet because not all the fruit will be harvested this side of eternity. There are aspects to our salvation, our adoption, that haven't been completely realized. What is the apostle referring to? Well, you only need to look at the next phrase. The redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Now, some of us might think we already have our resurrected bodies, um, to which I would say, yes, I used to be as naive and young um, like you. But if you live long enough, you'll notice your age starting to show through. You know, your metabolism slows down. You can't put it away like you used to. All you can eat is no longer appealing. I know that's blasphemy, but you start saying weird things like, oh, it's about the, qu the quality, not the quantity. <laughs> and it's not just appetite. Your vision worsens. Your hair grays. Your bone hurts, and you get sore from walking too many steps. And this is just what I've heard from others, but it's a warning for all of us, myself included, who are spry and in peak condition. But there's no denying it. From the moment we're born, from the day we enter into the world, we're getting older, not younger. And no matter how much we try to cover it up with a new haircut, a strong physique, or a healthy diet, underneath our hearts are a ticking time bomb. The deterioration of our body is a constant reminder that we are approaching death. That we are under the curse of sin. And so we groan for the redemption of our bodies. But take heart, it is promised to us. Loads and scores of scripture like Philippians 3, 20, 21. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks about how we will be resurrected with a body that is imperishable, no longer limited by exhaustion or susceptible to disease. Our resurrected body will last us an eternity. And why 
do we find this prospect so encouraging? Not because we'll finally attain a perfect figure or fulfill our lifelong dream of dunking a basketball. No, the redemption of our bodies is one of the last dominoes of our adoption, the culmination of our salvation. You see, when sin, Satan, death are no longer threats, when we're resurrected in newness of life. We can say goodbye to the fleshly nature. We will be unhindered to worship with full faculties, right hearts, clear minds, incorruptible bodies will allow us to savor and celebrate Jesus Christ forever. But I don't think I have to convince any of you we're not there yet. And so we wait, we groan, and we hope. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope by very definition can't be yet seen, yet experienced. Let me give you an example. If on the evening of February 13th, we're at church watching the Rams being crowned NFL champs and confetti is falling onto the field of SoFi Stadium, it would be nonsensical. It would be ridiculous for me to then say, well, I hope the Rams win, right? Like, you're an idiot, right? Like, do not behold what is happening right in front of your eyes. You see, hope always looks ahead, to something that hasn't occurred. I like how one of my friends puts it. Hope is faith stretched towards the future. It's a sure confidence that the not yet of our salvation and of our adoption is guaranteed to happen. And because we are so certain, we can wait with patience. Now, patience might not be the best translation here, For us, patience carries the connotation of passivity, inaction, that we're just sitting around doing nothing. But the word conveys the idea of endurance, of trudging along, of lifting one foot forward towards the next step. It's the soldier who presses on in the thick of the battle. Though he's confident that the victory is won, he advances until the enemy surrenders, until his general returns. So yes, we may experience intense suffering, but we persevere because we're destined for greater glory. Andrew Peterson wrote, homesickness is the way home. Homesickness is the way home. So practice a question for reflection. Have you settled in and cozied up to this world where nothing seems amiss, nothing foreign or absent? Have you grown so complacent and comfortable with chasing and even achieving the American dream that you think little of the next life? You see, one of the blessings in disguise about suffering is in how it pricks us, how it teaches us that we're not home yet. Suffering is like a wooden splinter from the cross. 
it forces us to remember, to groan for a better country. In the words of C.S. Lewis, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Does that resonate with you? Or do you just plow through life as if this is all there is? Within the groan of creation is the groan of Christians. And listen, within the groan of each Christian is the groan of the Spirit. Our third and last point, the groan of the Spirit. Verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We'll stop there. The Holy Spirit is called the helper in John 14, and here we find him helping in a particular manner. He helps us in our weakness. And you might ask, okay, how exactly? I am weak in many ways. Well, take heart, read on. Specifically in regards to when we do not know what to pray for as we ought. There are certain things we know to pray for. Certain things we know to pray as we ought. We pray for the salvation of our non-Christian friends and family. We pray for the ability to love our enemies. We pray for purity when we're struggling with temptation. But it begins to get murky when it's not so black and white. Do I pray for a new job when my department is being restructured or resolved to stick it out and provide stability? Do I pray for healing when I'm stricken with cancer or for strength to endure or for my testimony to die well? Do I pray for contentment in singleness or for God to provide someone to marry? And I know in these scenarios, these options are not mutually exclusive. You can pray to be content in singleness and for the provision of marriage. But I give these examples to show there are many different facets and angles to our prayer. And I don't know about you, but it can feel a bit overwhelming. A million, maybe a billion choices for and in our praying. And soon enough, we can begin to worry that God isn't going to answer unless we nail down the right ones. Add to this how we can stumble through our prayers. We get sleepy or lose focus, or we feel that our prayers are too infrequent. And it is hard not to be pessimistic. It is, not, it is hard not to doubt. You know, will God ever hear my petition? Nevertheless, answer them. Enter the Holy Spirit. Verse 26, But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I love that contrast. So, so Paul says, We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but... Here's the help. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I'll be the first to admit I don't fully grasp what's going on here. You have good, godly, smart people that are divided. You know, some take the position that this groaning is the Spirit's own groaning, that he intercedes on our behalf in an immense and relentless way, that Paul is communicating and stressing both the passion and commitment of our holy helper, that he prays with consistency and emotion we lack until he gets through to God. 
Others believe this groaning is actually our own groaning, the groaning of Christians, that we are in such distress and pain, we don't even know where to begin. It's so deep, our grief so intense, we, can, we can't even mutter a word. Only a whimper escapes. But the Spirit then comes along to fill in the gaps and make our groan his very own. An illustration might, um, might be beneficial. It's like how a little troubled kid is unable to articulate what has him so distraught. Right, you've probably seen this before where their eyes are gushing with tears. They have all sorts of snot congesting their nose. And they can only blubber out indiscernible words. But then Big Brother shows up to fill in the details, to explain the situation. And with a better grasp of the circumstances, the needs, and the hurts, the older brother champions his younger sibling's cause as his very own. He groans louder. Now, whatever interpretation you take, wherever this groan originates, it doesn't change the significance. Because in the end, you might not be able to distinguish who's crying out. And that's precisely the point. That's what comforts us. The Spirit petitions compassionately, competently, and completely on our behalf. We may struggle in our prayers, but the Spirit doesn't. He never misses the mark. So he's the perfect candidate to intercede for us. Verse 27. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Paul introduces all the players involved. You have God the Father, us, and the Spirit. God the Father is omniscient, leaving no stone unturned. He who searches the nooks and crannies of our hearts also knows the mind of the Spirit. Because guess what? They are on the same page. So when the Spirit prays, He always does so according to the will of the Father. The Spirit and the Father are in tune. The Spirit knows whether to pray for the new job opportunity or the cancer to go away. And no word is wasted. God doesn't argue with Himself. I like how the New English Bible translates this verse writes, he pleads for God's people in God's own way. Now, you might assume that this would take the wind out of our sails, right? Why pray when the Holy Spirit will do it? Why pray when the Holy Spirit will accomplish the job? But, beloved, that is the wrong question to ask. That shows a warped comprehension of this blessing. The better question to ask is, why wouldn't you labor all the more in prayer? Why wouldn't you petition if the Spirit always corrects and bends all of our pleas to be in line with God's will? Imagine you're playing pickup basketball. You need two more players, so LeBron James and I join your team. Are you just going to sit on the ground and let us do the dirty work to carry the team? No. If you recognize that we possess unparalleled skill and out-of-this-world athleticism, it doesn't leave you disengaged. No, you're hyped and reinvigorated to play your best. You participate with enthusiasm because you know the victory is yours. So Christian, consider this. 
God wants your godliness more than you do. And he is so set on that, the gift of the Spirit is proof of it. He's not just the first fruit. He ensures we get all the fruits interceding so that we make it to the very end. No wonder, as we will see next week, all things work together for our good. The Trinity triple teams us to accomplish his divine will. Though we may be afflicted in such anguish, we're sobbing and near silence. In our feeblest groans, know this, friends, we never pray alone. Never. The Spirit groans with us for a glory that's ours in Christ. After all, Jesus is familiar with the process. Not even he, he is exempt. He enters our suffering, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. And throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus encounters the brokenness of our world, of our hearts, the barrenness of the fig tree, the attack of the devil, the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees, the blindness of the beggars, the infirmity of the sick, the lostness of the people, the arrogance of his own disciples. It weighs heavily upon our Lord and Savior. He grieves over Jerusalem. He weeps at Lazarus' death. All the agony and pain push Jesus to Calvary until at last he hangs from a tree. Humbling himself, Jesus is obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. And there, Jesus groaned. Why? So we might have hope. We might be reconciled, redeemed, adopted as children. Jesus is crucified and dies to fulfill the will of the Father, to reverse the curse and secure future glory. And death is swallowed up in victory. Christ resurrects from the grave as the first fruit to show us there's more going to where he came from. So today, though there is a symphony of groans, creation, Christian, and the Holy Spirit, there will be one day something that surpasses when the groans of his people become shouts of celebration, when the glory of God dawns. But until then, we persist and press on, waiting eagerly for the hope of our salvation. Let's pray. Father, even now, your spirit is petitioning on our behalf. And it injects us with confidence. It allows peace to blossom in our hearts to know that though we mumble often in our prayers, you hear us. That you are at work in our hearts, in our lives. That we might endure. That suffering reminds us that we have not arrived. And though we enjoy some benefits of salvation, it is a foretaste of what is to come. And we will fellowship with you forever, unencumbered, unhindered. And until that day, we pray that you would give us the grace to press on, to remind us that through suffering, we are, that our sin is being whittled away, 
and our focus sharpened that we may see Christ, that we may cling to him and run towards him. Use your word, Lord, to stir up and build up faith that we may honor you with lives of obedience. Even in our agony and in our pain, you are faithful still. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.